Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. Hi, this is another episode of Appalachian Age. I'm Josh. I'm Adam. I'm Alex. And I'm Daryl. Topic today is conciliarism. That's good. And we're going to try to get this through without it falling on us. For those that are listening and have heard all the intro, uh, this is our third go around. We had 20 minutes. We lost. So we hope we can recapture the glory of those 20 minutes that we cannot give to you all uh, in, in this, uh, this discussion about conciliarism. Which sounds really boring, but it's not. It's very applicable. Very important. Right, right. Let's go ahead and, and unpack it this way. Conciliarism is the way that we govern ourselves as Anglicans. It comes from the word council. I recommend Ken and Phil Ashey's information. He wrote a book on Anglican conciliarism. That's the title of the book. He explains a lot of this, goes back and looks at the early councils of the church and talks about the methodology that was employed by the church then and why that needs to be what we continue to do as Anglicans, and it's been through the neglect of bishops to guard the church from strange and erroneous doctrine that we've fallen into the problem that we have right now, so that people, Anglicans, leave the Anglican communion and go to Rome, because they think that the problem is conciliarism, and that they, if they leave the conciliar approach to polity of governance and go to the Roman magisterium, which is um, considered to be as infallible as Scripture by, by many. I mean, that's been part of classic Roman doctrine. It's infallible, as infallible as Scripture. And then you have the ex-cathedral statements of the Pope when he speaks from the chair. They go there because they believe there's stability and that the problems that the Anglican Communion has been experiencing since, I want to say, the late 1950s. Some people would say that's too far back, and I could talk about why I think it is the late 1950s. You start to see some things really start to, to crack in, in ways that are unhealthy. But um, that they, they see the problem as the conciliarism, not as bishops who fail to live into their ordination charge. And the same thing then goes with priests, because priests are supposed to be guardians, stewards, and watchmen. And if instead we think that we are, you know, innovators, prophets, and, 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 I'm, and when I use the word prophet, I don't mean the prophetic conservatism of Scripture, but the prophetic liberalism of the modern world, which is so baked with pagan philosophies and deceitful scheming of men, you know, every, every new wind and wave of doctrine is a move of the Holy Spirit kind of nonsense. This is what's going on you know, for 70 years. And so the, the, the guys that go to Rome say, see, the problem is conciliarism, and the church is just too, too, too pliable, and that's why it can be swept up by these other, other waves. Rome may do a better job, in some sense, at holding certain forces at bay because of its magisterial authority, but they're still dealing with it. It's just in a different capacity, right? I don't want to talk about Roman magisterium today. I don't think that's good for, uh, that's not the topic. And neither is the other option for church polity, which is very prevalent. Do you guys remember? We talked about it for a while. Yeah, it's the independent church thought. Independent church thought, which is something like a, a kaleidoscope, right? Yeah. So Kaleidoscope of either pastors putting up their own people into specific positions, or um, a thousand popes Per church. Right. Instead of one pope, you have a thousand. So every, every local pastor is his own pope. He does what he wants. And he always cites scripture to justify what he's doing or some new revelation from the Holy Spirit. Conciliarism fosters the interdependence, not independence, the interdependence of the church. And so when you see those in holy orders and you see the laity depart from the clear plain teaching of Scripture as it's been consistently understood by the fathers and practice through Christian history. When you see them deviate from that, this is what you see, what we're seeing right now in our, in our Anglican communion. 
because this is a listener's question. Somebody asked, uh, sent it in, they sent it in to me and wanted to know about how Anglicans, uh, there was a, it, it was a, it was a long paragraph, but essentially, how do we govern ourselves? How do, how do we problem solve this kind of thing? Conciliarism. They didn't use the term because I don't think they knew it because it's not one that gets used regularly. But conciliarism is the council method of governance, like the general councils in the early church. And so we're adopting and preserving, maintaining that same practice. And that's, that's kind of what we want to highlight today and why the the problem with conciliarism is not that this is the way the church governs herself, and it always has, but the, when you have um, bad seeds, I guess, you get, some, you get some tears that end up becoming heavy influencers, and because of the cultural malaise that exists, proper godly discipline is never administered. And you can go back and you can look at Bishop Pike and some of the others in the 1960s in the Episcopal Church. You know, everybody likes to talk about Spong and his rejection of the Trinity and other things like that starting in the 80s, late 70s and 80s. None of that could have happened if there wasn't a cultural malaise some decades prior that didn't insist upon conversion of the heart and the mind and a real belief in both the authority of Scripture and the creeds. You wouldn't run into that. William Temple, who became the Archbishop of Canterbury when he was first seeking to be ordained as a deacon in the early 1900s, was told no by the bishop where he was in England because he didn't believe in the virgin birth. He went back and he spent some more time, time studying and praying and realized he had to submit to the church and conform to the doctrine that she, the church has. And he was ordained and went on to become an, uh, you know, one of the Archbishops of Canterbury who passed away during World War II, like right in the middle of World War II. Temple's got some fantastic writings on lots of stuff. But the point is, they didn't ordain him. They wouldn't until he believed the doctrine of the church. So when you end up with these, this untoward latitudinarian influence that really starts to wreak its havoc in the late 1800s because of, um, uh, what is it, the, the higher text critics, you know, well, if the Bible is the authority, then we know the Bible's no longer inspired because we see that it's imperfect. I guess the church is just a collection of people who want to live out Jesus's ethic, reducing a lot of things there. But that's essentially what starts to happen. And that insidious infection spreads in such a way that you have to have clergy with a particular kind of temperament and backbone that will refuse it and will refuse its entrance into the church. And we are so far removed from that even in Roman Catholic circles. That's why they're, they're muting some of their own guys who are holding to more classic Roman doctrine. That, that is such a... a, a, a um, we're so culturally attuned to saying what is agreeable that the moment someone stands up and makes a truth claim that's true, that violates cultural sensibilities. So it's only gotten worse since Temple. Conciliarism has to navigate through that cultural epoch. And it will. It's just in the process, you can end up with a couple of multi-century problems. And case in point is how long did the church deal with the Arians? You said 300 years. In the minimum. We're looking close to five and a half to 600 totally. Then the, the Donists, the Montanists, they're closer to 300. Um, no, that's the Gnostics. The, the Montanists, I think, the Donists, well, they go 600 years? Yeah, it's close to 600. Yeah, but you're looking at multi-hundred years of problems here. You know, we mentioned on Sunday, uh, last week, St. Ambrose. The bishop before Ambrose in Milan was a heretic. He was, he was an Arian. And we live in such a, a way today that we would look back and we would say, well, all those guys that he ordained then aren't really ordained. You, that's not, no, that's not necessarily true either. So the problems that you deal with in conciliarism can take longer to weed out because you only weed them out by true teaching. And you have to raise generations of people who will do the, to, the true teaching and they will give their lives to preserve it. So I think we have to keep this in mind that what we're looking at right now, it's only 80 years old. That like change the perspective and say, this has been happening for 80 years, or let's say 50, this has been happening for 50 years. 
it's long enough now. It's it's been happening. And this is what happened. Here's the one of the things I heard just last month from somebody speaking about the some of the decisions at Lambeth. Well, this has already been happening fifty years. It's become part of the makeup of the church. What? No. The problem has only been happening for 50 years. We should anticipate it unless there's some sweeping theological Athanasius figures that can rise up and, and, and thunder against it. And even if that happens, we could still be looking at three or 400 years of this. It's only been happening for 50 to 70 years. If it ends in 50 or 70 years, that will be a short-lived heretical practice. So we have to have that, have that mentality in mind. And this is where Rome obviously appeals to their magisterial authority, because since it's a, a top, up, top, top up, what is that? What is the phrase? Maybe top down. Top down. Yeah. That's right. Like, wait a second. Top down. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what. <clears throat> it is Wednesday instead of Monday. Uh, it, it's a, it, the, the top authority. So the Pope says, do this. It's done. And so they would appeal then to that practice and say, this is why this is right. Well, what if he's a bad pope? And this is when the Roman Catholics say, ah, but the Holy Spirit will protect him from ever making a mistake. Hold on, guys. If that was true, if that was true, I don't know anybody who'd be opposed to it. But nothing like that exists in Scripture. And if you say St. Peter was the first pope, and after his profession of faith, because of what was revealed to him, Jesus made him the rock upon which the church is built. Okay, I can concede that, but I'm not about to concede infallibility, because the very next story is, get behind me, Satan. So, I mean, you, you, this is, you know, we want the fullness of Petrine grace and authority and power in the church, but it doesn't look like a Caesar. And I'm not, I'm not trying to knock any, any of my Roman Catholic friends in their polity. I don't mean to do that. But just to, to, to create the contrast. Conciliarism is the way the church has governed herself. And it's the way that we as Anglicans want to insist that we govern ourselves. So let me, unless you guys have a comment on that, let me parallel, parallel or illustrate it through the local church. Here in our congregation, our parish, there are four clergy right now. There's two priests, a retired bishop, and a transitional deacon who's going to become a priest. None of us, as clergy, are members of the church. So as the rector of the church here, I'm not a member, so I can't vote. Okay? We have a vestry that's a representative board, if you will, that's elected from the members based upon our local church canons or bylaws, right? Extrapolate that on up then to the diocesan level. The bishop does not vote at synod, okay? So what we say about the diocese is that we are episcopally led the bishop leads the diocese. He genuinely has the spiritual authority as the right reverend father in God. He leads the diocese. But it is synodically, or it's, it's a vestry. It's governed by the, not a vestry, because we're talking about the diocese, but we're talking about the standing committee. They're very similar in principle. Then you can take that on up to the province. And the province has a lot of the same functioning aspects in it, but you have a house of laity and a house of clergy. And I don't want to get too much into those particulars because they can vary from province to province. Um, then you go from the prov provincial up to the global communion level. And that's where you've got the archbishops when they convene together in council as primates. Uh, primates, it looks like primate. The first time I saw that uh, 10 years ago, I'm like, primates? What are they talking about? But it's, it has nothing to do with monkeys. The, 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 the primates there, right? It's like a collect. What in the world is a collect? What's a collect? When I, I read through the prayer book years ago, I'm like, what, what is a collect? <laughs> That's how I read it the first time. What is it? What is it? The what collect. Is a collect. You know? It's like when I was 17 years old, and I started reading a particular church uh, history, a book from church history, and I went into the library, and I looked for, I was trying to get a copy of the Didache. Right. <laughs> the DDK. The DDK, yeah. right. The Didache. And the guys, the librarians looking at me like, what? 
I said, man, I don't know how to say it. It looks like did ache. I don't know how you, how you say that word. Anyway, I was in Southern Missouri and he knew what I was talking about. So thank God for librarians who are well-versed in lore, you know, otherwise you never find it. Anyway, the conciliarism here that's going on is the way that the church is governed. So there's no singular Pope in Anglicanism. There's nobody that says, this is what you're going to do. Because the bishops and the archbishops, the priests, all the clergy, we lead, but we lead with a certain, there's, there's canons, there's rules. We don't have arbitrary power to do as we please. There's no queen on the chessboard, if you will. Get that, right? May, may she rest in peace. But uh, you, that, that, that's the dynamic here of what's, of what's going on in conciliarism. That also means that we have to get together to discuss things that we disagree with, and it takes time to work through those disagreements. And the best way to begin to re re rebuff, to push back against error, is the truth. And you do that through good discipleship and formation. You nailed it right on the head, though, talking about how bishops aren't upholding to what they are, they're supposed to and things like that. We've talked about it a lot, how the problem is it, they're being taught in the seminaries first. Yeah. And in seminary, which I've been in seminary for a little bit, you graduated. There's, you know, there's a lot of people in seminary, and we talk. We talk theology. We, we, we hash things out. We talk about all kinds of stuff. And sometimes, you know, we come up with some crazy ideas, and there's no one there to correct them. And we've talked right. about that before. You're, right. The professors, you're talking about it with your professors, and they want you to philosophize. And they want you to think about all this stuff, but they don't correct you. And that's where it, the problem, you said well, it started probably back in the 50s, but that, and that's what it is. It starts in the seminaries, and the, that's where the priest and the bishops start going through. They go through seminary to be trained, and they're not corrected. Right. And then they're going to the church, and they're, they're under leaderships, and they're not corrected. Because that's the, the biggest problem that we've talked about. Like, what do we do? I've asked you that a hundred times. Like, what do we do with, with all the problems that, are, that we see? Because as somebody that's coming up through all this, it's, it's scary. And it's like, right. what, what are we supposed to do as, as God-fearing Christians? What do we do? Right. And I think that's part of what you're talking about, obviously, is, is having truth. What is the truth? Not, not, a, not a truth of, of our own ideas. And that's what people, we can't even explain what truth is anymore. Because people don't believe in truth. They believe in whatever their own truth is. Mm -hmm. I, I, I heard that at seminary, there was a fellow student and she was talking about her truth. And she was talking about a family member and his truth. And I sat there and I was waiting for someone to point out, because I thought I misheard at first. And it's 2015, right? So I'm waiting for someone to say, hold on, hold on, let's correct that idea there and talk about the truth. Because personalized truth is postmodernism that's so postmodern, you have no truth. Right. Right? Postmodernism does a great job of talking about narrative and hermeneutic and how you see the world and, and understanding that capacity. Right? Somebody's writing the story and they're putting their perspective in it. That's fine. God wrote a book and he put his perspective in the book. I have no problem with it. There's ways to deal with that, but you get into where it's just nonsensical. You can't build society with it. What happens in a lot of seminaries is they've adopted a university mentality. And universities is when you get all these competing schools that come together, you know, biology, natural sciences, astronomy, this kind of philosophy. They all come together and they, they brainstorm. Right. They study to the nth degree everything they can in their field which is one of the reasons why I have problems with some of the origin theories around the Big Bang. I mean, obviously, that was what I used to believe entirely without any kind of creation story associated with it before I became a Christian. But the point I'm bringing up here is that get the quantum mechanic, get the quantum mechanic philosopher, get the string theory guys, get the natural biologist guys, get them all together in a room, and you're going to discover they don't agree with their own their theories on the origins of the universe don't agree with each other. Right. That's fine. You hear me now. That's fine in a university because you're not trying to come to a conclusion. You're trying to propagate the ongoing research and study of what's naturally observable. Right. That's what you're trying to do. That does not work in a seminary, even though that's what's being put forward. That needs to stop right away 
You have to, in seminary, be thoroughly formed and shaped in the doctrine and the practice of the church since Jesus breathed on the apostles, and then look at that through history and begin to embody it where you are. Otherwise, you will live with this these multiple truth claims, not just from parish to parish, but within the local churches themselves, and people will be at odds with each other, all while claiming to be unified because they use the same prayer book or the same English translation of the Bible. I mean, th- this is the stuff we've got to we got to deal with. Well, and then that's actually, you know absolutely right. The there's truth, there's natural law, but we don't know it. That's the thing. There is a natural law, and there's a way that some of, we know a lot of. But you know what I mean when I say right, that. I, I got you. There is a way that it was done that it's not known, but we have the Bible, we have the text of scripture, we have tradition, we have all these things that show this is how it's done. And that was done through conciliarism, right. through the, the councils and the synods and all this stuff. It was already hashed out. Mm-hmm. You know, like Caleb used to always say, I, I think about an idea and I realize it's been settled for, you know, 800 years, 900 years. Right. And that's the thing. We, we, we just talked about the prayer book is we have one in every pew. We have several in every pew. And People just realize, okay, the thirty-nine articles are in here. Let me let me read them, and you, you, that's what you mentioned. That it's 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 something new and it's on, ongoing, but it's not, and it's always there. And how do we do it? And how do we realize what's already been out there? Before the podcast, we were talking about how we have so much information, we have access to so much, and I said we're we're the the stupidest generation. But that's <laughs> you know that's that's the truth. We have so much information yet we don't that's, use it that's your truth that is my truth yes i am very stupid yes that is my truth but this is this is what we're dealing with right and conciliarism has to take into consideration the cultural malaise and recognize that if we have this cultural liberalism theological liberalism that is under undercutting tradition c.s lewis said this he said that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing because it's not a direct quote, but Lewis said that the, the person with a new idea is at the mercy of all the old ideas. Right. The old ideas are not at the mercy of the new idea because the guy with the new idea has to now take his new idea and go back and read all the old guys to work out the implications of his new idea to find out whether it's good or bad. That's a good principle in the university. There shouldn't be any innovation in the church. Development but not innovation. And development is always congruent with what went before it. For, so for example, if the council, uh, or in 367, in Athanasius's cyclical letter, Easter letter, when he lists the books of the New Testament, the Old Testament, and then the ecclesiastical books, the Apocrypha, he's basing that upon what? Well, one, the common usage that they have, a list from Melito of Sardis, lists from uh, Caesar, uh, Eusebius, list, lists that ex- had existed already. And he is responding to a problem that's going on up the Nile where they're reading out of Jubilees and some of these other books. And he says, no, you can't do that. Here's the set requirement of books. That's in 367. Pope Damasus, a few decades later, says in Rome, here are the books, except he takes those, those ecclesiastical books and he makes them canon. Carthage and then Hippo across the Mediterranean, they agree a few decades later. All of that is development. None of that is innovation. Because we can see in the writings of Ignatius and those first generation of, of disciples of the apostles that from their quotes alone, we can almost compile the entire New Testament. And they call it scripture. That's development. Innovation would be to, and, and well, let, me, let me stay with this. Innovation would be to say, we're going to take the gospel of Thomas and add it to the canon because it was never received as such. Right. We're going to take a deviation in practice and we're going to make that standard practice now. That's innovation and that's always wrong. But you don't know you don't know what the Holy Spirit spoke to me though. Right, that's uh, that's just it, right? That's then that gets us into the the um who are they? Montanism. Mm-hmm. The Montanists who begin to supplant the clear plain teaching of God's word written with what they're feeling from the Holy Spirit. Right. And we don't understand, and those from Pentecostal and charismatic backgrounds don't understand that every human being has phenomena in their lives that they attribute to some supernatural or spiritual source. If they're fully atheistic, they just call it coincidence. But atheism, in that sense, it's so, so minimally present. Everybody attributes it to something. 
conciliarism has to take into consideration the theological liberalism that adopts innovative practices in the West and the moral corruption in other parts of the world where people could be bought and sold with political office because they have no means and the, the other practices. I, I don't want to get into a litany of uh, challenges that the whole global communion faces depending on where you are. But the point I want to make is that everywhere you live, there is something. Right. And it's only in conciliarism that we work to discern the mind of Christ. And it's only by being faithful in that conciliar process, always going back to God's word clearly written in scripture and understanding it through history, that we can make sure we're making a strong stand where we need to and, and letting, letting the Holy Spirit work his transforming power in the body of Christ. Should the bishops and the priests and the deacons already be formed when they come out of seminary? They should be, but they're not. In other parts of the world, they don't even have theological education. Right. So you've got to, you've got to do education on that side while we need to reinforce adherence to the creeds and to the practice. I think this is going to be a growing issue that we've got to, we've got to nail down as well. Is it's not just I'm saying the right things, but my morality, my ethics. And then my, my apostolic order, if you will. All, Paul said to Timothy, your life and doctrine, watch them closely. Right. Both together. Right. In so doing, you save both yourself and your hearers. Meaning, implying, I should say, that deception is so powerful because one, you don't know you're deceived. And two, you don't know you're deceiving others. And three, in your deception, you believe that's the Holy Spirit. And if Paul tells the guy he's been training for years, that's still a danger. Why do we think that we are suddenly off the hook and that, yeah, well, the quote, Holy Spirit told me, well, maybe he didn't. Maybe it was something else. And that's hard for people to hear. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've heard you say that to people, you know, and that, that is, that's hard, hard to hear sometimes. But you know, I did that as a Pentecostal. Right. Yeah. I want to, I want to sure. say it because, and I'm saying that because there are people that will think, well, he just started doing that. And it was an Anglican. No. I, I, I don't know why, but from very, very early on. Um, and it doesn't mean I, d I have not needed people to help me see it either, because I have. And that's the interdependency of the church that's built in, into conciliarism. We're interdependent, not independent. We need people that can help us discern that that's not the Lord. You usually call that being a wet blanket. <laughs> Thank you for that personality. <laughs> well, the, the other aspect Sometimes. about this, <laughs> since we're talking about like different, you know, sort of some different things, but, you know, I think about biology. And within the natural law, you have biological systems that are set up within the body that say, okay, you know, that protects stuff. And they go a certain way within any biological system. So if that's the concept within biology and natural law itself, why, you know, that reflection in, in theological living, it should, it's also there too. So like, obviously, you know, like you, you, a nerve goes from, goes throughout your body, right? And it goes to a different part of your body. But obviously then there's this other series of things that could come along with that. The connection point is basically that, I mean, for, well, for me specifically, and I know a lot of us, we didn't come from an Anglican background when we were born. Right. Right. So it's hard at first to say, okay, well, how do we make decisions? But to understanding that a lot of these decisions, it's a part of the natural law and how, how it kind of works out. How old are you? I'm 32. If you, at 32 years old, had been born and raised in the Anglican Church here in the United States, you would still need to learn all of this material. Really? Yes, because it's not been taught. The Episcopal Church, when it started running into problems, it didn't happen 10 years ago. Right. It happened 60 years ago. And when it started in the Episcopal Church, then because of the role the Episcopal Church has played in ecumenical dialogue, it spread everywhere else, both giving and receiving the insidiousness of what we're talking about, right? This is a much bigger problem. So it's so old, as a matter of fact, that the old is in, in a recent way. It's so old that the, the rise of the Pentecostal and the fundamentalist denominations in the past 120 years was a response to the rising liberalism of the mainline churches in the late 1800s. So this has been happening for a long time. 
And in the midst of all of that, that's been the experience of Christians in Western civilization, the Anglican communion has been exploding overseas. I mean, growing so fast, we can't get enough clergy to deal with that. You know, I think about that. I'll be honest with you. I think about that, not that I'm lying, but I think about that sometimes that, you know, you, you're slugging it out to get people to come to church here in the rain and to be faithful in very small things. And, and I think about myself, man, if I went over to a, a theological college somewhere overseas and I got to teach guys who were already living human torches and they were running to plant churches everywhere, would that be a better use of time? I don't know. But all that to say that these are the things that are going on all the time. This stuff is just part of the, the experience. Let me, let me bring up this next point, and this is out of the 39 articles, right? And this is on the traditions of the church. And conciliar, it's uh, Article 34. This speaks to conciliarism in, in many ways, right? It says, It is not necessary that traditions, capital T, and ceremonies, capital C, be in all places one and utterly alike. Every Anglican parish is like a different child, two parents. Right. They're not all the same. We say it in our formularies. We do not expect them to be. For at all times, they have been diverse, diverse, and, many, and may be changed according to the diversities of countries, times, and men's manners, so that nothing be ordained against God's word. So if from Genesis to Revelation, something's forbidden in Scripture, it's always forbidden. And those things that are not forbidden, like they are variations in Scripture, then there can be variations in our practice today. Okay? It goes on and says this, Whosoever through his private judgment, willingly and purposefully, doth openly break the lowercase t traditions and lowercase c ceremonies of the church, which be not repugnant to the word of God, and be ordained and approved by common authority, ought to be rebuked openly. You see that? So what is, he, what is the article saying? The article is saying the church has authority to regulate traditions and ceremonies on a large scale, as long as they're agreeable to Scripture and not contrary to it. The article then also says, any Christian who violates the localized traditions and ceremonies that have been sanctioned by the church authorities there, whoever does it needs to be publicly rebuked. And then it says in brackets, that others may fear to do likewise, to do like. So rebuke them publicly for dishonoring the authority of the local church so the whole church recognizes this is how we're living our life together in covenant. It says, He that has offendeth against the common order of the church and hurteth the authority of the magistrate. That was, was that in our first 20 minutes we talked about? That was about? in our first was, 20. Uh, well, let's not revisit it. Um, <laughs> uh, hurteth the authority of the magistrate and woundeth the consciences of the weaker brethren. So people who break the union and the unity of the church through their own private judgment need to be publicly rebuked because they're wounding the consciences of weaker brethren who, like we were just saying, they don't spend their days Googling or studying theology. They just come into worship and they see somebody suddenly doing something that's different and contrary to what's been done. They don't know any different that that's just a custom, that's just a ceremony. They've associated it with something that's connected to the gospel. That happens all the time. People come in and they want to change locally, and the article says rebuke them. That's part of being unruly. Yes. The next, the next statement says, Every particular or national church hath authority to ordain, change, and abolish ceremonies or rites of the church ordained only by man's authority. There's another distinction that we preserve as Anglicans that's right, good, and godly. There are many, many authorities in life. Only one is infallible, and that's the scripture. Not your wife. <laughs> the, the, the scripture, or your husband, the scripture, we have to obey it. But the authorities that still exist need to be obeyed for the authorities that they are. And then the last statement, so that all things be done to edifying. That is conciliarism. So you get diversity but necessary unity in the midst of it. I think that's where people get 
I don't, I don't know what the word to use, but I think it's where people get freaked out about the different ceremonies that we do. But I've, since I've joined this and been listening to other podcasts, one of my favorite comments that I've heard people say, one of the phrases that says, all can, some may, none must. And that goes just along with that. There's some things that we have to do, and that's in the scriptures. And the rest of the stuff, you know, people figure out, you know. There are there are the there are these general rules maxims that are that are helpful for us, you know. Uh, one of the common phrases for rubrics, you know, you you stand to sing, you kneel to pray, and you sit to listen. Generally speaking, right. that's what happens in the liturgy. I mean, that's right. Some variations and exceptions to that. But as a general rule, you teach people that, then they kind of got an idea of what's going on. Right. And what you're doing with your body, with each one of those actions in the liturgy, is shaping you. And that goes in the ceremonies. It takes us out of conciliarism per se, but in the conciliarism, we want to make sure that we are embodying this properly, recognizing that the challenges that we're seeing in the global communion, and as we go through the rest of the fall and we talk about the topics people have sent into us, the, the divided, divisive topics, the disagreeable topics that, that are tossed around amongst Anglicans. This is, I want everybody to kind of come back to this one as often as they need to, to understand that some of these things are grave. They're grave errors that are on the level of deception that will shut you out of the kingdom. Some of them are errors that the Lord is displeased with and he will, after a measure of time to grant repentance, bring about two things, active judgment, or he will give you over to the effect. And many of those things, have, they've already been happening for a few decades. We as Western peoples live under God's displeasure because of a lot of the things that have been going on inside of the church that's been permitted for a hundred some odd years even longer if you talk about some of the other problems, but I, I don't want to do a too full of a history lesson or come down too hard on Western civilization, which is an effect of Christendom, and I'm incredibly thankful for so much of it, okay? So don't, don't, please don't misunderstand me. But when we're talking about the conciliar nature of the church's life together, we have to keep this in mind, especially when you see a statement, something that is Lambeth doesn't, they're not doing the resolutions this past uh, month, last year, the last, and the next one will be in 10 years, if there is another one. They were doing calls. Right. And there's a difference between a call and a resolution. We want to make sure that we're staying in step with what God's, God has always said in Scripture. Well, I mean, at the core of some of this stuff, what I recognize, and Alex bring this up, brings this up pretty well, considering your experience in seminary, which I, you know, I know both of you all have been there. Adam's probably going to go eventually some one of these days. But um, buckle up, buttercup. One of the things, it's, it's at the heart of it all. Like at the call to be a Christian, it's not to come to the table and for Christ to uplift your own dreams and ideas. It's Dietrich Bonhoeffer that said very elo eloquently, you know, <laughs> in order, you know, to come to Christ, you know, you must die, you know. I, I paraphrasing. I'm not saying it directly. Oh, when Christ, Christ calls, us, when Christ calls us, He bids us to come and die. Yes, right. And so I guess too often we associate in this postmodern idea. Okay, well, my ideas have to be this. My truth has to be this. But Christ says no. You know, unless a we a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, you know, that's the only way that it brings life. You know, and we that's just so foreign. That's foreign. I I mean, to a lot of us. And I guess coming to the gospel, that's a daily dying to that aspect of individual self. To the larger grand scheme of being a part of the body of Christ. Right, because in conciliarism, you are not giving up your personhood. You're not giving up your own identity, but you're living it within the community of the church at large. Because you have a new identity. Right. That's represented in Christ. Right, right. And Jesus has one body. Right. He has one body. This is where the conciliarism really impacts what's going on because it, the, the principal means of unity in the church has always been the bishops. This is why in the larger global meetings, it's predominantly the bishops 
and whatever delegates or, or assistants they want to take with them to hash out some of these, these difficult issues. And part of what's transitioning in the global communion is the move away from conferences to councils. This is something that the Global South primates and, are, are, and um, provinces are working on, is the kind of language that holds everybody together. Let me illustrate it this way. If independent churches are like, um, you know, fishing boats, okay, right? They're all just kind of zipping and zooming everywhere they want to go, and hopefully they're catching some fish and helping getting some people into the kingdom. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're fishing boats. I'm not, I'm not calling them anchors that just sink to the bottom and kill people. <laughs> We're not doing that. So you contrast that with Roman Catholicism, which is like a Titanic, mm -hmm. right? If the thing goes down, buddy... There's not even enough independent churches to scoop everybody up. You know what I mean? Yeah. We don't want it to sink. So if Roman Catholicism is one giant ship and the Pope is its captain, the Anglican Communion, like the Orthodox churches, is an armada. We're a fleet of ships, and every ship has its own captain. And the armada sails together. Are the bishops the captains? Yes. I was hoping you were the bishop, you're the captain, but... No. 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 Uh... Hopefully, I've got a, a five by seven room. You know what I mean. I got enough. I got enough room. I can sit down and not be packed in with everybody, like shoulder to shoulder. How you just gotta sit there and kneal. That's all you have to do. Is sit that there what and it is? Pray. Yeah. Okay. Pray at your bed. I got you. Uh, there's the armada. What started happening decades past is that the there were various ships that broke away from the group and started to sail however they wanted to while they while they still while they still flew the banner of the armada. Well, one of the things to keep the analogy going that is, is being looked at now is how do you tighten the sailing together? How do, you, how do you bring it together so that you cannot sail apart unless somebody cuts the chain between your ship and the ships? And that chain is cut because you've got an outbreak of plague on board and you're not trying to cure it. You're just going around trying to spread it. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and, and rescuing everybody off that ship that you can. So those are, those are, they could be very poor metaphors, but I think in some ways it helps to, to unpack what's going on globally right now in the attempt to pull together councils that can issue statements that are binding, not because they're being said by a papal power or a papal authority, but because the bishops in a conciliar way have met, the primates have met, and passed resolutions and decisions, and then it's up to those bishops to go back to their own jurisdictions, the, the primates to go back to their provinces, and to work those, those things through in the conciliar models where they live, not through, not through a decree, but through working through by teaching and preaching and explaining so that the whole church continues to grow and mature in a healthy way. I think I have an even more modern-day metaphor, and just, just go with me. <laughs> okay. So we can say the church is like Chick-fil-A's. Okay? Oh, okay. Since we're Christians, we'll do that. Okay. So each Lord's individual chicken. one is uh, a franchise. Sure, okay. there's, there's a manager. We call them the bishops. Okay. So that's something that just struck my mind, that we can have each, each individual Chick-fil-A can be part of the armada. Are we going there for lunch? Sure, I guess. <laughs> okay. Maybe they could sponsor us. But that's the thing. Um, Armada is very outdated, so I wanted to use. So okay, if you guys okay. can get we're, that imagery. We're Chick-fil-A's. We're Chick-fil-A's. So okay. if you guys can get that imagery in your mind. Okay. We still have boats, man. I mean, uh, Adam, you're in the, the army, not still, the navy. Okay. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you were too. Well, I know, but the earth still is like more water than it is land. How much? Seventy-five, eighty percent. You know how much we've uh, discovered of it. I know. I I'm all about deep ocean exploration. <laughs> I mean, we don't want to go there right now, but uh, I don't but, understand how the Chick Fil A is parallel, though. I just wanted that. Just came to my mind. I don't oh. know. Would you like waffle fries? That might help. <laughs> I, I My think, sugar's getting low. I think part, part of the issue that uh, people have with it is we, we're trying to strike this balance because we, we talked about the extremes and we, you know, without saying it, talked about how we're somewhere in the middle. So we talked about being independent or the congregationalist uh, perspective. And then the other side, like uh, comparing it to like the Roman magistrate. And then here we are in the middle trying to toe the line. 
And depending on where we're towing the line at, um, you know, the question is, do we cut the chain to prevent the, sp- the spread of the plague or do we just take their banner away? And I think that those, the issue that our people are running into is like, okay, you used to be part of us, but now you're saying things completely contraire. How do we enforce and keep everything together? Or do we just say, here, give me that banner, give me that flag back. You're not one of us. And for me and my frustration in looking at it, isn't the fact that they have different ideas, is that they're claiming that they have different ideas, but yet we're the same. Like we're still just as faithful to what we believe is you. Right. And that is the misappropriation of conscience and the improper use of subsidiarity. Mm -hmm. Subsidiarity is related to things about ceremonies, lowercase c, and traditions, lowercase t, customs, if you will. Subsidiarity is not about the creeds. It's not about apostolic order. That's not what's going on. But that's the way it's been used for a long time. And when you look at what's happened in the past 30 years with GAFCON and and the ACNA and some of the other uh, reformational kind of changes that are taking place, the internet changed it. Because the internet made the global church aware of what was going on in the West. That's when you started to see calls change, uh, come, come f- and, and uh, press releases and all kinds of stuff started coming out of the global church a lot faster. And you can watch with the rise of international communications via the internet, how these things have been coalescing and changing. So I think that's part of how this heresy will be stopped. Like you said, it's not, it t- not going to take 500 years because people were hearing about it. It took so long. But I do think that's part of how it's going to be used now because the internet's been used for negativity a lot, but that's how it could be used to, in, in a positive way because people are seeing it. They see it in almost real time. Yeah. And if you, if you just check the internet for church news, you'll find millions and billions of information out there. If, if the particular problems in the Anglican communion now couldn't be solved in 50 years. Sure. 50 more years. Right. 50 years. That will be a win in church history. Right. Yeah. And I think there are advantages that we have today. And it has nothing to do with like our methods or how we're meeting or uh, at what level decisions are happening. It is the spread of information and how easy it is to meet and discuss. Right. Um, I think in a lot of ways we, we look at, oh, it took, well, you know, 200 years or 300 years for this to work its way out. Like it also took how long just to send a letter with you know some words <laughs> on it. Express was slower back then. It, like it, some of the the things that have caused the spread and for things to degrade very quickly are part of the ways that are going to actually I think speed up the the process of restoration. I think one of the, my favorite things that you say all the time is anything that's not natural is going to die, mm-hmm. and I, this is natural and it's against scripture. It's going to die, it, it, but when and how is obviously what we're talking about. But. Yeah. My recommendation would be getting people like good old St. Nick into <laughs> seminary, okay? What do you mean by that? Um, you know, uh, historically, apologies for the you know, of course, but the, um, you know. <laughs> oh, my. Let's hear the, the story, the, the okay. folklore here. So basically, during a council, I believe, he punched someone in the face because they were spewing some heresies. I'm glad you're paying attention. Yes, so as the story goes, St. Nicholas of the infamous Santa Claus ilk before he was Santa Claus, St. Nicholas struck Arius in the face at the Council of Nicaea and then was imprisoned overnight. Some people have come out to try to dispute that, but I think that may be, even if it's a myth, it's kind of nice. That's jolly to me. That it, jolly yeah. old St. Nick? Yeah. Yeah. Don't call Jesus created. Whap. <laughs> I mean, just that attitude. Yeah. Not necessarily, it doesn't have to be punching someone in the face, but just meeting somebody in that moment of them forming an idea that's illegitimate. 
Do you ever see stuff. Ernest Saves Christmas? <laughs> doesn't when when uh, the new guy becomes Santa Claus at the end? Doesn't he kind of go off on some people? No, it's like Christmas sleigh, right? Like they go to get they go to get the guy to be. I saw this in the movie theaters, you know. But, yeah. but they go they go to, what, to get the guy. Year, what year was this? Out of curiosity, eighty something. Okay, they, they go to get the guy to be uh, the new Santa Claus, and he's doing a he's he's like a kids he's like a Mister Rogers or something. And but he's just been picked up to be in a movie called Christmas Sleigh, which is a lot like murder and death or something in a cabin. It's totally against who he normally was. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he goes off on the writers for it or something. Yeah, he does. And like, and that's one one of the things that lends him to the Santa Claus. He was going to get a lot of money. That was right. He was going to get a lot. Right of there money. it is. And th there's your Santa Claus figure. Like he's going to be. He's going to. You know, there's time to take the whip into the temple. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, in you know, very reasonable ways. I'm not saying being reasonable about it, like or uncharitable. Is what you mean? Uh, a national apostasy that kicked off the Oxford movement in 1833. The word there that's used is remonstrance, mm -hmm. meaning we need to be, and I say we, God preserve me from error, and where it's there, give me grace, and then give me the wisdom to give it to others. But the, um, uh, the prophet Samuel saying, you know, far be it that I should sin against you by ceasing to pray for you. And he's saying this about what's going on in England in the 1830s. And then you get a whole wave of renewal, him writing, church planting, patristic studies, uh, seminary improvements, uh, ecumenical dialoguing, uh, all kinds of stuff kicks off. And there's the faithfulness. There's the remonstrance. And this is what we need to have in our souls, that we obey the Lord and stay in step with him. And we do what he's telling us to do, right? And, and when you think about how the Lord has grown and developed and honed your own theological understanding and, and hopefully in the same process, improved your practical divinity, the way that you live. You and I can give people the same grace as he transforms them and brings more of the members of the body into greater conformity with Jesus. Indeed. Well, that's going to be all for us today. and. We're glad to be talking about conciliar, concili, conciliarism. Say it again. Say it, what is it? I keep messing up this word. Conciliarism. Conciliarism. I have to break it down into two to say it the right way. Because conciliarism is an important principle that will help us in our next topics over the fall. Thank you all for joining us, and please have a great day. I'm Josh. I'm Adam. I'm Alex. And I'm Daryl.